We know the kitchen is where it all goes on. We chew the fat, make all of life's big decisions and eat straight from the tin when no one's watching. Join me, Anna Barnett, as I head straight to the heart of our guest home, where I swoon over interiors. I'm impressed by the sheer scale of a fridge and cover the most organised of freezers. We dig deep. Discuss career highs, career lows, condiment shelves and so much more. There's of course plenty of serious food chat. Each week we'll finish things off with our guests' best sandwich efforts and possibly a snoop in their fridge. Today's guest has recently released her fourth hardback tribute to vegetarian and plant-based cooking. One Pot Pan Planet is currently still riding high in the Times bestsellers list, and after three best-selling prequels, this success comes as no surprise. Her food is hearty, seasonal, and packed full of vibrant flavours, capable of converting even the staunchest of carnivores. This trusted author, chef, and food stylist spent over a decade fine-tuning her knowledge of food, whilst training with and eventually working for Jamie Oliver. Her inspiring journey to becoming one of the most revered authors within the realm of plant-based cooking is one of passion, hard graft and meticulous attention to detail. Anna Jones, welcome to The Filling and to your own kitchen. Oh, thanks so much, Anna. (laughs) It's nice to speak to another Anna. I know, Anna to Anna. Oh, in the kitchen. I have to say, I have been so excited to come and see, well, see you and see this new kitchen. Like you've just recently renovated your whole house. You've been back in a couple of months. You've been back in like three or, yeah, a few months, three or four months. months, Yeah. I feel like we have to really talk through the kitchen in detail here because, I mean, for me, I'm in that process again of renovating a kitchen and I swear it's really hard to, to make a decision, which direction, the aesthetic trends, do you follow a trend? Do you try not to, do you go classic because it needs to be timeless, it's expensive Tell, what was the process? Where did you start? Tell oh, me. Oh God, I found it actually so stressful and quite debilitating. I have to say the the rest of the house felt a bit easier, but the kitchen for some reason felt really tricky. And obviously like the kitchen is my domain. So I wanted it to feel exactly right. Um, but we were renovating the whole house at once. So yeah. we're lucky enough to live in a, in a lovely sort of semi-detached Victorian house in Hackney. And, um, you know, so, so there were quite a lot of rooms to think about. Did you like mood board it? Did you have yeah, like... I did mood board it. We had, I had slight decision paralysis around the kitchen because I was like, it needs to be the actual thing yeah and I think what I've realized in renovating the house is is there's never no actual thing like I have quite perfectionist tendencies anyway yeah and I think you know there's there's many different options that are going to be good and I think if we were to go into another renovation project I think I'd be less stressed out about achieving the like absolute perfect thing um but no this kitchen I definitely mood boarded it um I knew that I wanted something open and light I wanted something that I could sort of shoot in occasionally when I do shoots here and you know try to take pictures of my own own food which I'm still very much learning how to do <laughs> well you're getting away with it oh, if, if you're well. sharing them on Instagram at the well moment. yeah some of them are some of them some of those <laughs> are professionally taken but yeah some of them and actually John my husband who also works from home whenever I'm doing a shoot it's always like John up the stairs <laughs> because I I can do like the creative side he does the camera settings sometimes I'm a bit stuck and I'll be like what is it again? What do I have to change if there's less light? It's also amateur. It's quite hilarious. But no, the kitchen, the thing that I really knew I wanted in the kitchen was the floor, which is the Denison floor. Which I spotted immediately. I've, it's 
it's really special. It talk, is, talk us through. It's really lovely and really calming. So it, it was probably our biggest extravagance in the house. It's Douglas fir planks and they're really, really wide planks. And then it's finished with quite a white kind of lie. So it's just a very kind of, it, and we've got it over the whole ground floor that goes into our sort of lounge as well. Um, and it feels just very calm, very soothing. I think quite often, you know, floors can either be quite a heavy color or, yeah. you know, I love parquet, but also it's quite a lot of pattern. Yeah. So this just feels like a really, really calm base. And yeah. I think we kind of took the way we did the rest of the kitchen around this. So we've gone quite quite light on the walls we've got schoolhouse white in here which is farron ball so it's just a kind of it's a, a white with a very very subtle kind of putty tone yes. i think to it which is That's really nice we've got some big critical doors at the back um i mean if you live in hackney and you're renovating victorian terrace you have to have critical doors uh -huh. if you don't it's they throw you out <laughs> um so <laughs> and then the actual kitchen is from devol and we went for a mixture i kind of didn't want the kitchen to feel like it was just lots of you know, all the same. Yeah. So we actually have got some units which are just their classic shaker units and then we've got an island in there, Sebastian Cox So it's finish, like a dark wood. Which is a dark wood. It's bandsawn, which I don't know if you know what that is. It's basically, I didn't until I got the kitchen. No. They basically cut the wood kind of the other way against right. the grain so you have this really amazing texture and then it's got sort of almost like an inky navy blue finish on it we've got a bit of marble in fact quite a lot of marble because the island's massive um and yeah then some some lovely little ceramic lights we've got a big sort of old dresser at the back that we have all of my rather extensive crockery collection in <laughs> so no it just it feels it's really really the heart of our home yeah. and you know that's such a cheesy thing to say it's uh, totally but I stand by that it really is that and we spend I would say at least 80% of our time mm. in here you know all of Dylan's homeschooling was done around this table you know it, it's just nice and I think I was a bit split about whether to have an island or not but actually like you know when you came I here we it. sort of stand around totally. the island you know yeah. I quite often one of my favorite places to sit is actually on the kitchen counter yeah. and you know just sort of you know other people standing around the island not obviously really at the moment but um <laughs> you can have them all around at yeah, once to make my up husband and son <laughs> the other two people I've spent the last year with s sitting around the island <laughs> so no it just feels like a really nice space and I actually have enjoyed cooking in here so much more and I think the one key thing to say that I haven't got is any wall units yes I really wanted to kind of keep it as a really calm clean open space I mean my life goal is to basically live in a John Pawson kind of um house but unfortunately <laughs> we have too much crap for that ever to happen but it I wanted minimalist. I, I wanted to bring as much calmness as I could and I I always think having like quite you know, spacious, empty walls. We are going to put some art up here eventually. I've got a lovely Caroline Popham. Um, do you know her? She's know. really, really um, brilliant artist from South London. And she's done a, a really lovely paper cut for up there. So Ooh. just slowly collecting stuff. Yeah, it's quite hard to, to renovate and then immediately create a home. Because I think it is those bits and pieces that you've collected or or prints or, pe or whatever mm. it is that you kind of put up on the walls. It's not just that kind of the paint finish and you're done. And, you know, the home is your stuff. It is an accumulation. Of it really is. And even though we've been in this house for eight years, like 
I don't know. They're did just... you clear stuff out before we, you We We did sell a bit of stuff, yeah. We sold a bit of stuff. Um, we've moved our old kitchen table, which was too massive. It's actually out in the garden now, waiting to be sanded down. That's going to become our outside Ooh. table. So, yeah, we've kind of, we sold a little bit of stuff. We gave some stuff away. But I think quite a lot of the things that we really love have stayed in the house. Lots of bits of art and, you know, beds and things that, you know, are key. So, yeah. It's nice. I feel like that sort of accumulation of stuff you didn't is co- quite nice. You didn't marry condo everything. I marry condoed my clothes and cookbooks I need to do that. and a big amount of stuff. I mean, I've still got loads of clothes upstairs. I and mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and you've got a crazy collection of cookbooks. Where have they gone? They are currently, we've got a little kind of like shed studio thing at the back of the garden. They're currently in there because we used to have in our living room, we had the most enormous shelves that kind of completely took over the living room and they were filled with cookbooks. And I do think, you know, I'm probably over the thousand cookbook (laughs) mark at this stage, which is slightly ridiculous. But I realized I just, I found that quite, um, quite heavy, you know, having all those books. So I'm doing hard edit. We're going to have some books there. And um, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest. I think, I don't know, maybe. Put them in John's office. Put them in John's office. John, (laughs) you're having a cookbook collection in your office. This is how you're finding out. He's going to love it. Yeah. Just, then you can take that. (laughs) Exactly. It'll be so nice in there. A bit of color, some books. You'll look very studious. Yeah, a bit of kind of character to your space. And I'll pop in every now and then. Exactly. But I do, I love sort of when I'm working on recipes, I love going to my cookbooks and kind of pulling them out and getting inspiration. So we've got to find a home for them somewhere. Yeah. Are there any books in particular that you always go back to time and time again? Time and time again. I love Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Yeah. Samin Nosrat's book, which I actually think is probably the best cookbook of the last 10 years, if not longer. I think it's such, I think just from a perspective of really teaching you about cooking and how to cook and how to get the best out of food I think she's just so smart yeah I really really love that one um other books that I really love I think Ottolenghi's recent one flavor Flavor. is an absolute cracker it's like all the recipes I've tried in there have been so ridiculously tasty and do you go through and do you try people's recipes I do like I definitely am much more of a freestyle cook but occasionally I'll you know set my sights on something and think oh that looks great um and more often than not it is quite often an Ottolenghi recipe I made the coconut I think it's the coconut omelets in the latest flavor book and it's like a an omelet kind of hit with a bit of coconut milk and then loads of herbs I think I've seen that absolutely delicious I'm such a fan of that um other books Violet Bakery is an absolute classic I mean Claire is kind of my go-to for anything baking sweet and the frosting delicious. she does like the salted caramel I mean, frosting the devil's cake oh the, the, that devil's food cake is the cake I make every year for Dylan's birthday it's good, and isn't every it? year like people are literally like people want to get an invite to Dylan's birthday party for a piece <laughs> the of the cake yeah and I'm literally like but the recipe's out there on the internet like I don't care I still want to come um yeah so thanks for that Claire you've made me look really good I do tell everyone it's your recipe <laughs> with kind of going back to the kitchen how kind of organized have you got it because I know when we first renovated I was like right I'm gonna label all my jars I'm gonna yeah. organize them like my flowers all in what like things were color-coded like you know everything yeah. was very pleasing the cutlery drawers clean that kind of thing yeah um how far have you gone with that 
I th- it's quite organized because actually I've kind of stripped back a bit the amount of equipment that I had because for years and years and years I did food styling as well as kind of writing. Um, I had this ginormous kit of equipment that yeah. I used to like, you know, trudge around London with to go and, you know, help other people's food look really delicious in books. So I had all these, like this crazy equipment, like 75 million cake tins, all that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Every um, size. So I've just tried to keep it pretty lean in here. Okay. Like, I mean, as we sit here, like there's, there's quite- There's waffle makers. There's, there's waffle there's... makers. There's quite a lot of equipment. Like, you know, my, my magic mix and stuff, I've tried to keep kind of in cupboards rather than have it out on the side. Um, and we've got lots of pans, but I've tried to keep it quite lean yeah. just because I, you know, I use the same like four mixing bowls. I didn't need the 13 mixing bowls I had previously in the last kitchen. Um, but as, yeah, as I mentioned, I have a slight ceramics problem. That's a good problem yeah. to have. And, that's, and ceramics look really pretty. They can be out. They can be out. And I I feel like with my job, it's, you know, it's, it's an occupational hazard. It's fair enough. John doesn't think that he's like, it's a one in one out now, babe. And does that, (laughs) does he kind of, does he really get a say? No, not really. Not really. In the kitchen. No, nothing. I can't, I can't hear you. I think it's more kind of like an idea that he likes to kind of, you know, throw out now and again. I'm currently um, struggling with my husband because I will be like, oh babe, I've just found this like amazing bag that you could get me for my birthday and kind of treating myself to various things and then we'll kind of send him a link for something like on our kit that's a bit mm, more low end mm, mm, and he's mm. like this is not going to continue in this way you don't get to get all the really nice stuff like oh you can just be in designer <laughs> and then I get kind of fogged off with like a sale item at yeah. kind of 9.99 or something so we're kind of struggling that's and that's kind of the, the new clothes policy is a one in one out yeah. so I need to do I'm due a big clear out I think I just realized that having and it's taken me 40 years to realize that you know having less stuff is way less stressful yeah it's way less stressful it it really helps us keep life simple and keep things pretty calm I think having you know I I think through my 20s, I just kind of like accumulated all this stuff, like, you know, either from traveling or, and I I create quite an emotional attachment to stuff. I'm like, oh, I can't throw away the sarong from 1992. (laughs) Fisherman pants from Thailand. I mean, I do in a way wish I'd kept those because (laughs) the cerise pink drop crotch fisherman pants. Very comfortable. (laughs) They could have been perfect for lockdown. I always find as well, I wonder if it's like through your teens and kind of early 20s where like well for me like I didn't have a lot of money so I think when I saved up and bought things I created that attachment because I was like oh this actually means something because you know I've decided to spend what small amount of money I do have on this and I think that probably has kind of carried on where I now need to just Mm. you know let go I do do kind of like sales where I get my girlfriends to come around and be like okay go for it this is I yeah this is all going yeah yeah go for your lives yeah I definitely do that I actually yesterday saw someone walking around in a definite pair of boots that were mine that I gave <laughs> to the local charity shop and it made me really happy that's good. That's so yeah good. she paired them with some very unusual like headscarves and she was just had you know one of those people which I can't get away with where everything is a statement like the skirt the trousers yeah. the boots the hat the scarf she looked incredible but yeah you got had my boots <laughs> I was like can I have my boots back <laughs> I was gonna I guess start from the beginning because you've had an enormously successful career but you started out 
in finance in like with a very like on a very different path yeah and I just wonder like maybe you can tell us a bit about that moment I don't know if there's a moment that you can pinpoint that kind of real change of heart and the impetus for that change I guess yeah I yeah well I definitely can so yeah no I did an economics degree and then I worked in like finance and then financial PR for a bit and I don't, I just wasn't that excited by it. Um, so one day I was on the train to work and I was reading an article that I think was in the sort of um, education bit of the paper. It's obviously a long train journey because I don't <laughs> tend to read the education bit of the paper. Um, but it, it was all about determining your calling. And I think I felt a bit lost and it, it said that you determine your, you should determine your calling or your passion by what bit of the Sunday paper you go to first, which, you know, for me was always the restaurants it was always the food and at that moment it was like a light bulb sort of moment I was like yeah of course and it wasn't like I hadn't been cooking I'd been cooking since I was like eight or nine you know but not like cupcakes and rice crispy cakes I'd been cooking the family dinners it was like something that I always did it was the thing I got most excited about I was like that weird child that was like whipping lemon mousse when I was like 11 and everyone else was outside playing did anyone want to eat um, that lemon mousse <laughs> not really it's, I mean it was it was sort of late 80s early 90s so, so it was no. a thing so I mean lemon <laughs> mousse was very normal at the time <laughs> very um I think I never really considered it as a kind of career choice I'd always you know, I think been sort of like slightly pushed into other things that felt maybe a bit more academic or like a reliable job. Not that I'd been pushed, but I just hadn't found what I needed to find, I guess. And then that light bulb went off. I went into work that day. I Googled cookery courses in London and Jamie Oliver's 15 came up. I hadn't even really heard of it. I kind of knew who Jamie Oliver was because he had a couple of successful books and I kind of put my application in that weekend. I went for like a selection weekend, which was an incredibly strange outward bound selection weekend where we had to like build bridges out of matchsticks, et cetera. And then you'd like have to cook, cook some food and do that. And it was all filmed because it was still part of the TV show at the time. Say, so were you on the TV show? I wasn't show? on the first one. They did a kind of like catch up show, a couple of shows. So they did a second series and right. I was on that, which I mean. Can we pull up that footage? Or I mean, still- no. I, I wouldn't if I was you. I actually didn't feature that much because I didn't really do anything particularly bad or naughty or, you know, and I think, you know, what that kind of, um, you know, those fly on the wall TV shows definitely want, you know, people to kind of like, I don't know. The drama. The drama. The highs, the lows. Yeah, exactly. The jeopardy to like, <laughs> you know, have a go at Jamie or something. And that wasn't happening. What was the criteria though to get on the show? Or it was to just get on to the show was to be passionate about food. It was, you know, their focus was mainly people coming from underprivileged backgrounds. Um, it was also people who weren't working generally I was really honest with them about the fact that I had a job about the fact that I wasn't from you know an underprivileged or challenged background about the fact that I had a university education um so I really did I went as a kind of like punt I really didn't think I was going to fit the bill um and I think they just really saw like a really, really sort of primal passion for food in me. And they were like, look, we'll let you through kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I think it was great because, you know, you you want a lot of different people in a yeah. group. If everyone in the group is from the same 
situation and it doesn't work so yeah. you know it was you know it was I was like sort of like I guess the kind of responsible one I hate <laughs> saying that because I don't really deem myself a responsible person but I guess I have to be now I have a child <laughs> so so yeah it was quite a coup to get on it actually yeah. um and then sort of a week after I had that light bulb moment I'd quit my job and I was cooking because it was such a fast turnaround right um so it was a real sign. I was like, well, this is exactly the right thing. And you didn't feel nervous. You felt like you didn't have to kind of be at a certain level. You could just go in and it was all about the learning and the progressing. Um, no, you didn't have to be a certain level. So at 15, they actually sent you to chef school. So they sent oh, okay. you to do a GMVQ in, um, in chefing. And for some of the, some of the people who needed support with maths and English, they also did, you know, help getting their GCSEs and that kind of thing. Right. So it was a really, um, kind of, uh, holistic sort of so look at, at educating or re-educating or whatever. So uh, we did this short kind of GMVQ and learned the basics of chefing, like, you know, very French orientated. And I have to say none of the stuff, the teachers were amazing, but none of the stuff I've really ever used again. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> but you've got it, you've got those <laughs> But skills. I've got it. If I yeah, ever need, if you, to, need you know, to. yeah, if I ever need to like make something very French, I can't even remember the things, but yeah. How long were you in that program for then? So that was a year. So that I was a year. did that for a year and then went into the restaurant for a while and you kind of shadowed a chef on each section of the restaurant so you really learned the restaurant because it was kind of like part of Jamie's sort of Jamie was on this sort of skyrocket course yeah. at that point um so like everyone wanted a piece of him so um it was actually quite an amazing time to like be around him to work for him um because there was you know like Bill Clinton coming for dinner and like right. you know that's a bad example, but <laughs> there was <laughs> like, like more than that. There was like Brad Pitt coming for dinner at right. the time. Here we go. At the time, here we go. Brad How was Pitt. He? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was so nice. He was so nice. And he left. As handsome in real life? Very, very handsome. And he left an absolutely enormous tip to be split between all the staff, How which big? is like, I don't even remember, but it was definitely the biggest tip that had ever been left. I mean, it was in the sort of thousands. I think it was in the territory of thousands. So he, you know, once split up, it was a few hundred quid for each person That's but nice. I mean that is a nice move that isn't is nice. it and that then there was Bill Clinton which was quite an you know a generous tipper I'm not sure that he was as, as generous <laughs> a really. tipper we'll just make this all about this <laughs> but they were on, they were on the South Beach diet I remember What's so that? so I think it was like it was a lot of like steak and eggs and no carbs so we sort of had to very specifically cook to that which was quite interesting um cook for prince charles he has an egg with every meal and i don't mean just his lunch and dinner like breakfast it's breakfast lunch and dinner so we when we <laughs> I don't know why I'm <laughs> so when we did this incredible meal but we had to like poach an egg on the side um which i mean if you're the future king you can ask what you, you want just can't that you? Extra but yes yeah, he just needs that extra protein so he has an egg with every meal which i found quite funny if he still does it was actually on the crown was it i missed yeah, that there was a bit about him having an egg with every meal yeah in that what was i doing <laughs> i'm supposed to be watching that <laughs> it was in that exchange where i think um Camilla was sort of, um, you know, telling Diana about lots of the things oh, that yeah, Charles okay. liked. When they go uh, out for lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the egg was in there. So, I mean, we've got verification via the crown, which <laughs> apparently is fiction. So after that, you then went on and did a stint in both Spain and Italy. Yeah. Tell me, because I literally dream of doing something oh, like this. It was so great. Um, 
First of all, I went to Dea in Mallorca, um, Mallorca and worked oh, at a man. restaurant there called Sebastian's, a really small restaurant. Dea is, if yeah, it, it's a really beautiful place. Um, it's an amazing sort of hotel at the top of the town, and it's quite sort of arty, mm. um, artist commune, but kind of like quite affluent artist quite commune vibe. Celebi as um, well, yeah, <laughs> and it was just really really nice how long were you there for that sounds like heaven i was there for i think about three three months or so not a super long time but what brought you to that so as part of kind of 15 when you left um the 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 chefs who kind of looked after all of us trainee chefs um helped you set up you know relationships with different restaurants so they helped they, they put me in contact with with Sebastian's there and yeah it was great it was you know I was sort of getting was up every morning on? it was pretty full on it was it was quite a small restaurant yeah and the guy who it was kind of like a chef owner so he right. was very into the you know he was there all the time he worked really hard and I think it was only open like three or four days a week so actually it was reasonably breezy yeah and I just thought I, I like all my Christmases had come at once because I could get up walk down to the little cove have a swim in the morning that little restaurant what's that restaurant called down by the cove that everyone you know goes to what? So I don't beautiful. know it's so beautiful and um, is that where you were going swimming then well I was day? going swimming in that little cove yeah it was so beautiful and then I'd kind of like come up do my shift and then there were a couple of you know bars where everyone hung out in the evening so that was amazing and I you know the guy there um made a lot of his own bread so I learned quite a lot about kind of bread making there which was really nice but yeah then it was a very different experience when I went to work in Italy I went to work in Tuscany at this beautiful restaurant owned by the Antonori family it's Antonori is a big sort of winemaker Mm. and all their vineyards were kind of surrounding this little town called bad pronunciation sorry in the Italians (laughs) Badia di Passignano I think it's called um that sounded good to me thanks and there's a beautiful beautiful monastery there and then just this one restaurant so it was really the middle of nowhere but it was it was amazing I there it was very different I had to do six double shifts a week so I had one day off a week but I was literally in the kitchen from like 8 a.m to kind of 1 a.m and how did you handle the the language barrier well that was tricky because no one really spoke any English and having trained at 15 I definitely you know knew a lot of kind of Italian terms I'd worked with Gennaro quite a lot and so you know I knew a lot of the Italian food terms anyway and I think that's how I really survived I just basically talked about food all the time on repeat on repeat yeah but it was it was an incredible experience and because how long were you there for? I was there for like four months so I wasn't there for a really long time but it was um long enough to kind of learn some yeah. great skills you know great it, it was kind of trattoria food but like slightly higher end so it yeah. was that but it was all those incredible Italian techniques like they never let me off the dessert section they were literally like there's no way you're cooking pasta because you know so I, I just did the dessert section for four months but it was also you know it was really fun and it was great to watch and it was just amazing to be living in these like quite historic quite incredible vineyards and actually one so all the all the sort of international stuff because it's quite an amazing restaurant lots of people came from abroad to work there for a bit and I was living with one sommelier who was just obsessed with the Antonori wine so he spent his entire salary on a different vintage of Antonori wines each night so each night he would open this bottle of like insane wine yes and he'd have (laughs) no one else to drink it with so every night we'd kind of like you know have worked very hard but then go back and have a glass of this you know 
literally like in a normal restaurant you could not I could not ever afford to drink it. But yeah, and sort of drinking it in the vineyards in that place was That's quite a special experience. But yeah, after four months of six double shifts a week, I was I was ready to go. <laughs> but no pasta making? No pasta making for Were me. Were you allowed no. to watch? No, I watched and I learned, Fine. definitely. But yeah, no, no pasta. I mean, I think I was allowed to make the staff pasta meal um, a few times, but also very daunting. Yeah. There was like, I think probably eight, pretty punchy Italian men you know in the kitchen and me so it was quite you know it was quite a shift it was quite an experience so to be cooking pasta for them was pretty (laughs) (laughs) nerve-wracking it had I think a couple of Michelin stars as well so it was like it was that vibe perfect yeah (laughs) not scary at all (laughs) entirely petrifying so after that you then went back and you begun to work with Jamie but more closely yeah so tell me about that I'm so intrigued at this kind of part of the journey yeah well I basically went back and started working at 15 in the kitchen but kind of as a paid chef um which was really nice to kind of be back there and be being paid and for them to think that I was good enough to kind of you know actually be part of the team there um and one day I think someone was walking around it was actually my good friend Danny McCubbin who has worked for Jamie for years and years and years and he came in and said look one of the magazines it was BBC Good Food I think want to do a feature on the trainee chefs and they'd love you to write a recipe and in my head, I'd kind of always known that what I would really like to do was to like write recipes, to write recipe books. But I was just really happy cooking where I was cooking. So it wasn't something I was really thinking about. But he came and he said, look, w- would anyone like to write some recipes? And I was like, me, me, me. <laughs> Jumped at the chance, um, wrote a couple of recipes for that feature. I think Jamie was really impressed with them because they worked and they were nice. Um, and as you know, recipe writing is a skill um and so I asked if I could help on the shoot and then on the shoot so it was the, the, the it was David Loftus who's the photographer who's worked with Jamie for years and years and years Ginny who then became my boss who's a brilliant kind of food stylist and recipe writer and then Jamie and I just worked as hard as I possibly could I made myself like the most useful person that has ever existed in the world <laughs> because I I think I could kind of see you know, that if I could make myself really useful to them, then maybe there would be an opening into this world that I really wanted to be part of. Um, So I was really lucky. And then from there, I, you know, I think they obviously thought I was useful. They offered me a job. And then we, I worked for Jamie for seven years. So helping him do food styling, but also developing recipes and, you know, working with him very closely. He's super hands-on, Jamie. He, Mm. you know, there isn't a recipe that goes out of his business that he hasn't kind of had his eyes on. You know, obviously he can't cook and develop all of them it's such a big business now but yeah it was great working with that team and I think you know as I said before it was you know he was really on his trajectory ascent you know he was he was really 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 you know just everywhere and being talked about everywhere and all of his amazing social projects were happening and school dinners was happening um so it was a massive adventure it was a massive adventure and you got to work across all those projects yeah I did I got to be in the kitchen with um Nora I don't know if you remember her if anyone watched school dinners she was she was the bonkers Irish dinner lady who is still very dear to me I absolutely love Nora um but she 
does not take any prisoners. She she <laughs> she says it like it is. So I was in the kitchen trying to persuade, you know, Jamie had come and do the filming and then, you know, he'd go on to film something else and I'd be there trying to sort of like persuade Nora. It really was a good idea to like not have the turkey Twizzlers and to, you know, cook stuff so you from were doing scratch. The yeah, so kind of doing the follow-up, right. being in there, kind of helping her, helping her do her ordering, like helping, you know, the, the actual nuts and bolts of the process. Um and, you know, obviously helping with Jamie's filming days and stuff. So it was quite, you know, a steep learning curve for me. I then went and did it in America. So worked with lots of schools in America and the school system in America, which was way harder because so how, there's way more red tape. Yeah. So how did that work? So Jamie would go out there. You were obviously very, you know, you were part of that team. <clears throat> but then you would go and spend time in those schools and kind of try and implement everything that he he had kind of laid out as yeah absolutely so so I, d- I work with another brilliant chef out there called Chris he's an American guy who helped us with it too but I remember going out there and like you know I'd obviously go ahead of Jamie his his diary is like you know packed probably now until 2026 he's the busiest man I've ever come across so he'd fly out for the filming right. but we'd go ahead of him and you know I remember sitting in the like you know the local council offices and them just like sort of you know giving me these folders about the kind of you know the nutrition um you know situation that had to happen in each meal and you know about you know how much dairy had to be there how much bread had to be there all of these things that had to be met and so much red tape and so many things to jump through and I think the really complicated thing in the American food system is that there's big lobbies there like the milk lobby and things like that that actually manage to get lots of their stuff into the food system so as well as this kind of nutrition thing that you're trying to meet you're also trying to meet all these um you know goals set by the lobbies to make sure that the milk you know producers are selling enough milk to the right. school so I was kind of there with all of this red tape all of this kind of politics you know and trying to feed this back to kind of London and, and make some sense of it so thank goodness they flew in a man called Chris Styler oh, really? <laughs> who knew a bit more about it all than, than I did but definitely um definitely a stretch definitely some new learning and definitely really interesting because the, the Nora warmed to us. Nora, the the head dinner lady here yeah. in Kidbrook, just down the road. She she warmed to us, but the American dinner ladies, not so much. Really? <laughs> well, just I so. I get it though. We were like these crazy English people coming over from the other side of the world, like being like, "What you do is not good enough. We're going to make it better." Yeah. You know. And whilst we were, you know, kind and you know tried to do it in in the softest and most diplomatic and most gentle and human way I can still understand why they would be defensive yeah um because actually it wasn't them it was the system really that needed changing but they were the bit of the system we were highlighting so yes really interesting and I and actually a place I never thought when I started my cooking career I'd end up in you know school kitchens in West Virginia (laughs) and how long how long were those stints then that you'd be away from um so I think I was away um I did a couple of um we did two series of those and I, I think four or five months I was away for so yeah big chunks of time yeah yeah, but really like so interesting. And I think, you know, have absolutely helped me form how I think about food yeah. and no kind of um, inspiration food wise during that period. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I found West Virginia 
was I I adored being there. It's right. an incredibly, incredibly beautiful state and they grow some brilliant produce. The farmers markets there are amazing. Um and I met some brilliant chefs and cooks, but yeah, the 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 stuff you could buy, the restaurants and the fast food definitely was was much more prevalent than than any kind of food I really wanted to eat so yeah quite a complicated setup there. <laughs> you were with Jamie for seven years where at which point were you like I'm gonna go solo I'm gonna kind of I got an offer to write a book for innocent drinks right do you remember those guys? They're yes. still around. And it was before they were bought out by, you know, Coke. And, and it was when they were, I guess, still a very experimental kind of like quite, I guess, groundbreaking brand. They were at the time yeah. in the way they spoke so directly to the consumer and the things they did. And I, I, I'm sure some of that is still there. Um, but they asked me to write a book for them. And I thought it was an amazing opportunity. And I couldn't do that and work for Jamie at the same time. So that was the point at which I decided to kind of like go on my own and and do writing and then food styling for other people. Um, and off the back of that book I wrote for Innocent, the publisher who I work with on that offered me, just said, look, I think you're great. I think you should write your own book, which was amazing. And had that been in the back of your mind? Had you been like, this is going to be kind of, this is a, this can be the trial, <laughs> the trial run. And then in a way, I think like, I remember as a little girl, I used to literally do like cooking shows to the pot plants. I actually used to do that. I used to like, obsessively watch cooking shows and I used to love reading recipe books it was just what I loved and yeah. so I think you know in my head somewhere there had been that as you know as something that I wanted to do at some point I think I didn't 100% know what that was going to be I think until I shifted how I eat and became vegetarian right. and, and the vegetarian food I wanted to eat and the vegetarian food I was making at home I couldn't see represented like in books and actually yeah. in restaurants at the time yeah um so that for me felt like when it felt right to like be like right okay I'm gonna this, do this yeah. yeah you decided to sample vegetarianism for six weeks before making it a permanent life choice um what was the impetus for this um also, I guess the thing that I always find quite interesting and frustrating kind of on behalf of my poor husband <laughs> is him being vegetarian. He is frequently asked, which baffles me really, mm. that, you know, why are you vegetarian? Yeah. And, you know, I think any of us with some level of education can understand, you know, there may be several reasons why you would become yeah. vegetarian. But I guess being someone that was a chef, that food was at the kind of forefront of everything mm -hmm. you were doing, how challenging was that to make that transition? And I guess also what was the impetus for it? It was quite, it felt like quite a move at the time yeah. because I was working for Jamie at that time and I was cooking all day, every day, like testing his recipes. And obviously a big part of what Jamie does is like meat and fish. Yeah. Um, and I just decided to give it up for six weeks. So at the beginning, it didn't feel like a big deal. I didn't really tell anyone. I was just How like... How are you still testing recipes? Yeah. Well, I was still testing them. And if I want to, you know, if I had to try something, I would try a teaspoon of it. Because I, I hadn't made the shift to be vegetarian right. at that point for, for massively ethical reasons. Yeah. I kind of, I felt on shaky ground about whether I was okay with it. But it was more... 
I just didn't feel great eating the way I was eating. And yeah. that was kind of the initial shift for me. So I would try a little bit if I needed to, but also there were lots of people who worked there whose taste buds I really, really trusted. Um, and so I would actually ask them to try it, mm. you know, for seasoning, whatever else, if I could. If not, then I would try a bit. And, you know, still to this day, if I was working for someone and they, you know, and they really, you know, and I was, I never cook meat these days, but I feel like it would be dishonest of me to serve a plate of food to someone that I hadn't tasted, you know? So, so that's how I did it at the time, but it did feel a bit weird. So eventually after the six weeks had passed, I'd been vegetarian for a few months. I was like, no, this is sticking. I'm not going back now. And you felt um, great. You I felt great. I felt much better. I, I, I was really enjoying cooking that way. It just felt like it had opened up a world of like, you know, sort of experimentation and creativity that maybe wasn't quite there before so yeah and 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 a few yeah I think after a few months I realized I kind of had to tell everyone um but it felt like this was the time just to frame it was when like St John's you know the kind of nose to tail eat every bit of the pig was kind of like that was the thing <laughs> yeah. that was the vibe in chefing and that's what everyone aspired to so for me being like that was I'm, the staff party yeah so I'm like not gonna eat any meat now and any fish and it felt quite scary because I was like oh god they could sack me um but obviously you know they were quite understanding and I said I would still cook it I just wouldn't eat it and yeah and just the rest is history. went from there yeah <laughs> I guess what I'm curious about is like that initial response to your first book which I read somewhere was it was in its sixth print run, but I think that was quite outdated. So I imagine it's kind of continued. Yeah. I've always been quite an ambitious person, but with that book, I was like scared to be ambitious. I kind of like just really hoped that like some people would buy it. Yeah. I didn't, I, it felt too scary to have ambitions about whether, you know, a bunch of people would buy it or if it would still be in print a year later or whatever. Um, so no, to, to now realize that it is probably, I don't know, definitely, it's definitely in six print runs, probably a few Ten more. languages. Yeah, a lot of languages, a lot of countries, it, you know, and it's even been translated into like French and Italian. And I just think, God, with those kind of very, very kind of like developed, you know, countries with this incredible culinary heritage yeah. to have my book sold in their bookshops feels wild to me yeah do you feel like there's a sense of responsibility in terms of to continue this path of promoting meat-free cooking and lifestyle and I definitely do I feel like it's you know at the beginning as we said you know it was kind of like an experimentation but the longer I haven't eaten meat the more abstract it becomes yeah. to me to eat something that comes from a living thing it yeah. just to me it, it's not what I want for my life and you know I don't pass judgment on other people yeah. who do eat that way I think we all just have to make the decisions that are right for our own lives but well no I do feel that um you know the more I've learned about eating this way and the more I've learned about the impact that it has on the world around us I do definitely feel a responsibility to just kind of just let the world know that actually this is eating vegetable well putting vegetables at the center of your diet so being vegetarian or vegan vegan you know is obviously even more sustainable but that is the most impactful thing you can do for the planet yeah and for me, it has been a very joyous shift to eat in that way. Um, so, you know, there are sustainability decisions that we have to, we'll, we'll 
probably have to make over the next 10 or 20 years, which will be much harder, you know, flying less, like not having cars, you know, these things which are on potentially on the horizon for us. But actually putting plants at the center of your diet is this very joyful, very brilliant, very delicious thing. And I feel like sharing the kind of like connection and joy of it and how it can be delicious and easy definitely feels like something to me that is, you know, something that feels important for me to keep on talking about definitely because I feel like also there's so many kind of like you know when you talk about taking things away from a diet like there can be so much kind of negativity around that the focus Mm. is on like oh god you can't have these things and I think for me it's always been a focus on like oh my god there is so much you can have and there is so much you know generosity to this yeah you know what I've uh, been very much enjoying is your one change campaign that you're doing oh, on Instagram. Thanks, Faith. Yeah, it's so good. And I think it it's about these small changes. Like maybe tell us a bit about the... Yeah, so well, over sort of, I think we're in week three of it at the moment, but we've every week I've been encouraging people to kind of focus on one aspect of sustainability in their kitchens and how they can make easy changes. And it's not about you know being like a perfect sustainability activist though (laughs) absolutely hats off to those people it's more about you know trying to get loads and loads of people just making small changes and I think you know there is a level of urgency I think that's why I wrote this book quite differently because I feel like we are at a crunch point now we all do need to start taking action so the one change thing is just about asking people you know this week can you think about the food that you waste can you you know make some small changes every day to not throw that food away or you know another week to think about the energy you use when you're cooking which I think is something I hadn't really considered that much until I started looking into it for this book but you know lots of cooks and chefs will turn on the grill they'll turn on the oven they'll turn on three pans and have all of these you know energy sources kind of like blaring away when actually you know they're not that's, in use. that's actually a lot of energy yeah. and that's ranking up your, you know, energy bill, but it's also using way more resources. So if you can cook a really delicious dinner in one pan on one hob or in, in the oven, then, you know, that's a massive win. So it's really the, the one change thing is just trying to sort of like shine the light on the very simple changes that we can make. And it's, I think, you know, this whole sustainability conversation isn't about shifting your entire life. It's just about the small changes, but doing them and doing them frequently, you know. I actually liked what you said and kind of my pet peeve is just constantly being given a new tote bag. It's like, I only need one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, I might as well have all the plastic bags. And I think on one of your posts, you said, you know, you have to use your tote bag a thousand times for it to be kind of... More sustainable, yeah. Totally. And obviously, you know, I think that's the really challenging thing in this whole sustainability conversation is because when we actually look at the carbon footprint of things sometimes you know I I watched a really interesting video the other day about the benefits of actually wrapping cucumbers in plastic and actually the amount of food waste that that saves completely overtakes the amount of you know damage that the plastic does but of course we are all so sold on you know 
anti-plastic, anti-plastic yeah. which I, I'm I'm totally with and we don't want plastic yeah. we can avoid plastic if we can you know not have those things that are going going into our oceans then amazing but also I think we have to be real about like what is practical for people yeah. um so but do you find it is just about that transparency of like the and I I think I was even saying this yesterday in terms of packaging and companies just telling you and I think there's like the the greenwashing is an issue Mm. I think it's just having a much more open and transparent conversation about the impact of what you're buying into absolutely and I I really believe that and and I know know there's a couple of campaigns trying to work on this that we should have you know just like we have the calories fat sugar on the back of products carbon footprint we should have the carbon footprint Mm. and you know there needs to be a massive education process for the population because you know I'm someone who's looked into this a lot and I still couldn't tell you know I couldn't tell in a flash like what is a good number on a carbon footprint but I think there just needs to first of all be education and then you know and then be some labeling actually so that people are able to make those choices because there's so many contradictory things when it comes to sustainability um and it feels like a complicated area when actually you know there is the science there we have the knowledge and it could be simplified yeah I think also as well within I know that between boroughs and that actually what what and how they recycle varies yeah so you know, in some boroughs, you can actually recycle single-use plastics. They have specific recycling capabilities around yeah, that. Yeah. And in others, they don't. But, like, the government does need to take charge of this and help, conf- you know, even more transparency or more education around how to recycle mm, correctly. Mm, because, mm, mm. you know, the other day I'm reading, you you know, if your pizza box is dirty, like, that won't be recycled. Yeah. Don't put it in with your recycling. And then yeah, that yeah. whole pack, you know, everything you've recycled within that bag doesn't get recycled. Mm. So it's just about... Yeah, I think that is a crazy thing. And I think, you know, quite often, I think the humanness of the process is taken away. So when I'm recycling things, you know, I do try and like constantly check, not check in, but check in and know what I can recycle and can't recycle. But, you know, I I clean my recycling in the same way as I would clean my dishes. You know, I don't, you know, if I think about that person on the recycling line who's chucking stuff around, like, would you want a dirty like yogurt pot? Like, I feel like... Uh, and I think that's the same across the board in food we've kind of like slightly dehumanized the process haven't we and I think the more we kind of think that there's a human on the other end of that like picking up that recycling and actually really helping us out the more I think we can commit to kind of like doing it in the right way yeah where do you kind of draw your influences from for you know you're on book number four and your books are not small and you've offered vegan alternatives for the majority of those recipes Mm. was it 200 plus recipes yeah in this one yeah yeah, and you know that's a really enormous body of work and the process of sitting and writing a recipe and testing it and you know Mm. maybe tell us a bit about that process you go through well yeah I think you know inspiration comes from everywhere and obviously over the years a lot of inspiration has come from traveling and come from eating out um obviously we haven't done any of that this year but I still I think in my head I've still been going back to places that I really remember the food of so so South India for me is a real is a real kind of like 
it's a real memory bank of dishes and I, I still very much remember lots of the things I ate there. So I still go back there in my head sometimes right. when I'm developing recipes. Mexico, the same. I'm so always good. going back to kind of trips to Mexico and kind of Central America. So that's definitely there, the travel thing. I think also eating other chefs' food yeah. I find endlessly inspiring and quite often I'll go to a restaurant where something's a bit fancier but I'll come home and try and make it in a sort of simpler, yeah. slightly more humble way and I really enjoy that challenge of turning something that's quite fine dining into something that you know is you know is achievable at home are there any specific chefs that you're kind of referring to oh, I always love towpath path but yeah. uh, so Laura Jackson I just think is a brilliant Laura Jackson the chef there's two Laura Jacksons <laughs> out there um Laura Jackson the chef is um yeah she's just a brilliant cook and I love everything she makes but actually her stuff is quite homely so yes, I never totally have to homely. like adapt it too much um I think Lyles James Lowe at Lyles yeah. I always think makes really 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 delicious food and quite often I've come away from from his meals quite inspired you know what I love He's not cooking it in London anymore, but quite old school. But I love Peter Gordon. I don't know him. He, so he used to have a couple of restaurants in London and they've since closed. But he was kind of like the sort of godfather of like fusion cooking. Right. And I think fusion cooking has always had like a really, really terrible write-up because, you know, it went a bit wrong when, you know, people in sort of pubs were like putting, I don't know, kind of like... Weird garnishes. Yeah, weird, weird, weird <laughs> garnishes where they didn't or belong. Or just stacking everything yeah, up on exactly. top of it. Exactly. But um, I really enjoy that kind of cooking. It's yeah. that kind of, it's got a very kind of like sort of Australian, New Zealand, Antipodean feel. Yeah. That kind of thing that I feel like is really good in Australia and New Zealand and also in California where, you know, they're really good at kind of mixing cuisines in quite an interesting, yeah. quite free way that I don't think happens in Europe quite as much. But yeah, I used to love going to, you know, Peter Gordon's restaurants and eating his food that always, it just always had a surprising touch, whether it was soy used in something that was quite British or whether right. it was kind of like yuzu juice used, you know, to finish something. Um, and yeah, I still go back to his books a lot. But I think quite often for me, I think what I've learned having written a few recipes now. Um, <laughs> How is, many do you think you've written? Oh God, it's definitely, think, it's definitely like in the thousands. A thousand, yeah. Even just, well, I, I just wrote- Just on your own books. It, just in the books. And then I wrote a Guardian column, you know, for five years, two recipes a week. So I don't know what that is, but that's a lot of recipes. Yeah. Um, so there's but there's a few out there. Have you ever fallen out of love with that process and food? Or have you ever had like a moment where you're just like, this is too much for now? Oh, yeah, definitely. And that was what was the impetus for turning vegetarian. Right, right. It was that kind of being like, God, I'm over food. And food being the thing that I always got most excited about. It was like, I'm done with this. Yeah. Um, and that's why I made the change. And definitely, I think, sort of, there's definitely been points this year where I've been like, I cannot cook another meal, <laughs> um, you know, and I can't wash up another thing. Um, and definitely, there's been points through my career where I've just thought, God, I just, you know, I just don't have the ideas but that's when you have to go back quite often then I like going and cooking with someone else yeah. or searching out someone whose recipes or food I really love and just either you know going and cooking with them in the kitchen or just right. you know doing something different yeah I think because I it is quite it can be quite a solo endeavor like to be at home writing yeah. coming up with ideas yeah, 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 testing yeah. writing and 
I mean, apart from it being quite isolating, which I know everyone's kind of had a taster of this mm. year. But yeah, that's interesting to kind of, to say that, that part of your process is on occasion to kind of... yeah. To cook with, with other people. people. Well, also, I think, you know, this year it hasn't happened, but usually I will cook with lots of other cooks when I'm doing like shoots for my recipe books right. or shoots for columns or whatever. And, you know, quite often that's the same few people, but occasionally it'll be different people. And I just love standing next to someone else while they're cooking, yeah. watching what they're doing and, and yeah. picking up techniques. And all of these amazing, you know, food stylists and cooks that I cook with are constantly learning off other people. And it feels like this lovely, um, you know, collective sort of process. So I've massively missed that this year, I have yeah. to say. I'm always curious because you, your food is totally delicious. What do you, what would you consider to be your kind of fail-proof, fail-safe dish that you could serve to kind of any carnival mm. <laughs> and, and could really kind of yeah that's that's convince a, them there is i think there are a few recipes i'm just trying to think of the what, kind the, of from the the new recipe the um the shepherd's pie with a bit of a twist yeah I'm interested the, in the sagaloo shepherd's pie i feel like is a really good one and actually it's it's the recipe that lots of people have cooked from this book and it always surprises me in a book because you think there's a recipe that's going to be like a real runner and then it will quite often be something else. Yeah. Um, and this... Do you think that's a sign of the times in terms of, you know, the the people have obviously gravitated to the nourish, like something yeah, that's the really comfort. nourishing the comfort yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah, I think it definitely is a sign of the times. I think also the book came out in March. It was still quite cold. Yeah. Um, I think people wanted that comfort. Um, and I think people just want, you know, th there's slight escapism because the top is a kind of sagalu alu gobi kind of, you know, meeting of minds. Um, and it goes all crunchy and crispy. And then the bottom is kind of... Um, based on a sort of rajma masala but you know sort of slightly different version um rajma masala is like a sort of it, it, it's a, a a bean kind of a, quite a simple bean curry usually made with kidney beans and yeah i feel like that dish is hearty it's got loads of flavor it's kind of filling enough for kind of like you know any person who could walk to your table or sit at your table so yeah i feel like that that would be a really good one there's also a mushroom and kale lasagna in my third book um which i feel like is also a real a real banger if you've got yeah. kind of you know people who are like what's this vegetarian thing all about why <laughs> i'm really curious what you would say to my husband um who you've met actually mm. um what you would say to him because he uh, is vegetarian but doesn't like mushrooms and he actually has the audacity to contest that he does not like mushrooms he's like no i do i do so he'll like them if they're kind of he likes the flavor but he doesn't like actually eating any chunk of mushroom well you know what i am sort of 50 percent with him <gasps> Which is I ridiculous. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. But I'm very specific about mushrooms. Okay. So like I only like mushrooms if they have either been roasted or cooked like with some quite aggressive heat in a pan. Yes. So I like them if they've got like crispy edges. I cannot stand a mushroom if it's kind of, you know, Slime. just kind of like, you know, been in the pan with way too many other mushrooms for not enough time. <laughs> um, so I do get it. And actually my brother who's vegan is very much anti-mushroom. Um, so those guys, they would have a great chat. 
<laughs> we should hook them up and they can bore each other. But I, 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 I do kind of get that. I feel like they have to be cooked with care and in the right way. In yeah. a similar way to aubergines, actually. I yes. think a badly cooked mushroom or a badly cooked aubergine. There's nothing similar. worse. Yeah. As a child, I've read that you spent a lot of time, or you lived in San Francisco yeah. um, for four or five years, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For and a while. Then it was kind of, you would, you would travel back there mm. on a yearly basis. And now your sister lives in Los Angeles. How much, you know, how much of a connection do you have to San Francisco or California? Yeah, I feel like I've got a massive connection. Actually, I feel quite aggrieved that I haven't been able to go there for quite so long. Totally understand. Like, obviously would not <laughs> have wait. just went there. Yeah, I, I do feel a massive connection with it. You know, we spent, I spent a good amount of like my formative years there and it was just quite a dreamy experience. I went to this very kind of California-y sort of like play school and everything was just you know everything just felt very easy very sunny very nice and since my sister's been living there we've been going out there every year for you know you know three or four weeks and hanging out with her there and it just feels like it's got a massive part of my heart there and I really love the food there I think that plant-based food and vegetarian food there is is something that is kind of like on a par with you know you know the meat and fish I feel like most restaurants that you go into definitely in LA and in San Francisco you know 50% of the menu is you know is vegetarian or plant-based and it just feels very normal that that's part of the conversation and I think we are heading that way here too which is great there's really no apology made for kind of any intolerance or any yeah you know if you're gluten-free if you're dairy-free yeah all of that is part of your order and that's absolutely exactly and it's quite accepted and I feel like that you know in some ways I think you know some places in LA perhaps go a bit too far with that kind of thing but I do think it's it's really nice to have that quite democratic way of eating being like no you're coming here to eat and you kind of like can choose um you know what you want to eat essentially that's what I want when people come and sit at my table if they don't like you know mushrooms I don't want to serve them a plate of mushrooms (laughs) I prefer they tell me do you know I feel like that's one of the things that has stopped me from becoming vegetarian I predominantly I eat you know for the most part I do eat vegetarian but the yeah the thought of going out and not having you know the the charm and the excitement about going out is Mm. the variety and Mm. being able to go oh what do I fancy or like that sounds amazing not being you know not there just being kind of that one option which obviously things have changed and are continuing to change so it's not as bad as it Mm. it was you know it's not mushroom risotto anymore it's not a beetroot and goat's cheese tart yeah but there are there are still some restaurants that I still go to and I very much love but there's there will only be one option, so yeah. I'll know. In some ways, it's quite it's quite freeing because you're like, oh, I'm having that, rather than yeah, that yeah. forty five minute. Like, shall I have that? Shall I have that? Can we have that? What can we do? Do you want to have that? Do you want to have that? <laughs> you're like, um, well, I'm having that. <laughs> yeah. So in some ways, it kind of like is 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 quite an easy an easy win. But gonna, maybe I need to think of it like that. Yeah, but I do know what you mean. When I do go to like exclusively vegetarian restaurants or places that really really put vegetables you know front and center it is really nice to be able to look through the menu and think god I can eat all of this yeah and I know for my brother he's vegan and he's been vegan now for you know 10 or 15 15 years probably and so you know he was vegan when the only thing you could get was like a Nando's bean burger yeah and nowhere else made anything vegan so for him when we go to a vegan restaurant you can literally still see his eyes go wide <laughs> yeah. he's like oh my god I can eat anything 
But I think that was partly why I wanted to make all the recipes in the book either vegetarian or vegan, because I felt like I wanted it to be... Specifically for your brother. Specifically for Owen. It's for you, (laughs) Owen. No. um, But so that it just felt democratic. It felt like anyone could open that book. And, you know, I obviously can't cater for all the food intolerances and everything else like that out there, but that everyone could cook pretty much every recipe so yeah I mean how much extra work did that give you quite a lot yeah yeah. because obviously it was testing everything twice with the vegetarian and vegan version and obviously then you know when you try and veganize something you know take out the eggs take out the butter take out whatever um you know that isn't always that's often not a straight swap it requires quite a lot of attention and, and and a bunch of tests but one of the incredible wins that um I had with it and Kitty who um was helping me with some recipe testing at the time we were sort of in the kitchen trying to work out how the hell we get these cakes that we loved in their kind of like egg and butter version to a really good version with vegan stuff. And we tried fizzy water and we were literally like, this is going to absolutely fail. But we read somewhere on some random blog um, that it worked and it was incredible. So you basically replace it, it. You have to do it specifically to each recipe, but you know, that kind of raising right. that the eggs do for your cake. Um, you know, if you put fizzy water with, you know, a raising agent, like baking powder or bicarb, you get the same effect. Wow. So, I mean, I was like, I just, yeah, I literally was like, we were doing like little jigs around the kitchen. <laughs> I mean, obviously way too excited yeah, about yeah. a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> and from start to finish, from like concept to completion, what was that time period like? For this book? For this book. For this book, it was a long time. So I think I started it about two and a half years before it came out. Right. Um, usually my books are kind of done and dusted in a year. Um, obviously the global pandemic didn't help this time. Um, because we wanted to print it sustainably and oh, okay. in Europe, so it wasn't shipped across the world, and um, and all the all those those printing presses shut in February last <laughs> year, so um, we had to wait. Um, so it, it's definitely been a longer wait than any of my other books, um, which feels quite scary because it's like, oh god, I wrote this recipe such a long time ago. Does it really s- feel like it still represents how I'm cooking now? But luckily, it does. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think the next one, the next one will hopefully, if I'm writing, you, I, I, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about some ideas for my next book. Yeah, which would be really fun, which feels ridiculous to say when the last books come out, but they, no. they do take quite a long time to put together. Have you got a kind of concept in mind with the direction? For this book, for I'm, I'm thinking about a few different things at the moment. I really am thinking about focusing on, you know, just quite simple cooking, I think, um, just because that's how I cook these days. And yeah. I think after, you know, I, I think for me that what it's important for me to help people with and to bring to people's lives are the kind of really simple solutions on like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. Yeah. I feel like if you get those dinners right, if they're delicious, if they're nourishing, if they're full of plants, then what you do at the weekend, those kind of like four hour recipes, like that's someone else's domain. That's right. I feel like that's not, that's not, what I feel like I can bring so yeah definitely kind of quick easy you know I think maybe a bit of a focus on flavor but who knows 
Yeah. I just recopy all of Ottolenghi's books. I was going to say, he just was, had a great uh, book. I just bought that for my dad as well. I was like, this is so lovely. I was like, my dad would appreciate no, it. No, his is amazing. But yeah, I think the way they talk about flavour in that book is really interesting. Yeah, it is. Do you know what I would love to know? Would you ever want to open your own restaurant? I've thought about that again and again and again, actually. And I have to say, this year, I have been very glad that I didn't have my own restaurant. Because I've just seen my friends who do have restaurants just actually be the most amazing inspiring people I've ever seen like pivoting their businesses and doing incredible things I just think the London food scene and the food scene all over the UK Mm. is they're the hardest working people they're the nicest people and the things they've done to keep their businesses going I just honestly it nearly makes me cry actually I just think it's so cool um but no I've been very grateful this year not to have a restaurant but I have thought about it and our long-term kind of plan is to maybe move out of London London. John, my husband, is um, has you know surfed all his life, and that's kind of what brings him great joy. Um, so I think our route one day will be to live by the sea, um, and so I think I kind of feel like a restaurant in that location, yeah. like by the sea, a bit more relaxed, maybe is for me. I'm not sure I've got the energy for the kind of competitiveness of the London restaurant scene. I feel like, you know, I'm not sure that that matches up with being a mum, having a young kid and just trying to live a kind of reasonably placid life. Balanced. Balanced But one day, one day I'd love like to grow some veg, to have a greenhouse, kind of like a sort of Peacham Nursery Stroke River Cafe on sea, that kind of thing. Yes, please. I mean, I'm up for that. I would would definitely (laughs) turn up to that. And finally, what I would consider the most important part of every podcast I mean (laughs) all of this has been amazing but (laughs) I need to know what's your go-to sandwich what's your technique when it comes to sandwiches and we need to talk about condiments so in whichever order you oh yeah big time I mean this is a great chat for me because I'm (laughs) a huge sandwich fan so I think my I was really thinking about this because I'm I'm really into sandwiches. Yeah. Um, but I think my favorite sandwich is an egg mayonnaise sandwich. I have an appreciation for an egg, but only three quarters of it. The fourth quarter is always just too much. And then I've not yeah. enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah. I feel like that's it. But I feel like it has to be kind of like quite light. I kind of do egg mayo, but I hit it with a little bit of yogurt. So it's not okay. as kind of... Um, cloying just from the mayonnaise I always put loads of cornichons loads of capers loads of dill in so it kind of really freshens it up yeah um so yeah and I guess keeping it like I think I love do you know the sandwich shop sons and daughters up in king's cross so i'm actually thinking i'm i'm thinking of the i was thinking of rita's which is not the no, one. no it's not so it's in the same place up in um is it cold drop yard cold drop yeah. yard yeah and my friend james um and sam um run it and they do the most incredible incredible egg mayonnaise sandwich I've ever had in my whole life um and they put kind of truffle crisps in the egg mayonnaise sandwich so you kind of get the texture you get the crunch um you get the freshness so that is probably my best sandwich but I have to say that one is so massive I feel you on that by the time I've got to the end of it I'm literally like oh my god (laughs) I don't think I can ever eat an egg sandwich again but um yeah definitely a sharer that one yes um so I think at home I kind of make my own version of that quite often so are you gonna make that today that's what I'm gonna make I'm yeah I'm so excited that's for what this. I'm gonna make today um 
And what else? We, and condiments. I mean, I'm yeah. a major condiment fan. My brother used to say to me that I only eat food so that I can put condiments on it. I get told oh. that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and why wouldn't you? That seems like a great idea. <laughs> I know. So yeah, I'm I'm into all the condiments. Key players. Key players. <laughs> I mean, there is a gherkin relish which yeah. actually we could probably use on our sandwich that we're going to make in a second um made by Hallenmon, which is a welsh sea salt company it's kind of a mixture of kind of like brilliant kind of like hot dog gherkins and then like a quite classy kind of dill mayonnaise and I am just obsessed with that I slather that on absolutely everything the other condiments the ryus have you had the white masu ryus is that the one with the peanuts the chilies yeah so they do a few a few very attractive jars (laughs) very nice branding they do a few different ones yeah um there's a cashew one a peanut one a black bean one I'm obsessed with the peanut and the cashew ones I mean we get through jars and jars of that yeah um absolutely delicious um i mean we're we're quite a big mayonnaise family in this house and any brand i actually love veganaise do you yeah i love the organic veganaise maybe i need to give it another try yeah Yeah. the organic it's it's the follow your heart veganaise that's the one i love if they want to do an endorsement deal with me then great no i'm (laughs) I'm here and i'm eating every day (laughs) i'm here we eat every day no my my husband's family have got just like an epic obsession with mayonnaise the amount of mayonnaise that johnny's i mean they're all like the fittest slimmest most sporty people which is why they can probably consume <laughs> the illegal amounts of mayonnaise they eat i feel like um, i'm i'm probably like part butter part mayonnaise probably 80 yeah, percent. yeah i love i love making mayonnaise but i have to say you know we have we have the veganaise occasionally have a bit of Hellman's you know I'm here for all the mayonnaise yeah yeah I really am sometimes I don't even mind like I really I've really got (laughs) this is so ridiculous but I've been very passionate about St John Focaccia and there's a few places that I've found that do the St John Focaccia and I actually really to my husband's embarrassment went into a little deli in Victoria Park the other day and I said I was like oh um I was like oh you but the the focaccia looks nice it's like where's that from <laughs> I was like they were like oh it's actually the St. John I was like I knew it I knew it I was like so excited because it's really it's so light but it's so intensely oil, oily oh top and bottom you know I don't know if I've even had it I'm gonna bring you a, a slab because yeah. that with <laughs> I'm so excited about it. but that and it sounds bad to say to put butter on something that is already so oily yes. and so salty and with like rosemary through it. Sometimes there's tomatoes, like cherry oh tomatoes, basil. God. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes I have just kind of had that with butter and mayonnaise, which is delicious. Delicious and wrong. <laughs> like it doesn't sound like it should work. The triple the oil. Yeah, triple oil threat. Yeah, that is that is intense. But I mean, definitely but you've you got do to need do to these try things. This and John Focaccia because it is. It's just. Mm. like unreal I'm definitely going to do that and I think actually thinking about you saying that I feel like olive oil is a key condiment for me if you can consider that a condiment because obviously use it to cook with but I pretty much finish almost anything warm or any salad or almost anything I cook actually with some olive oil so yeah we have I usually have a few different bottles on the go just you know for cooking for drizzling for everything so I feel like that is probably above mayonnaise (laughs) if if that's possible (laughs) Um, I should also tell you as well that St John's do um, an amazing egg mayonnaise for catcher do they (gasps) so you could go and just have it all done for you I've been doing this past year. <laughs> what have you 
doing cooking at yeah. home? What have I been doing? I'm just going to go and get the egg for catcher. <laughs> I'm going to bring to it. Screw the recipe you. books. <laughs> that can just be on every page. Yeah, exactly. Um, this has been so lovely. Aww. Thank you for having me in your gorgeous new home. Um, and yeah, I can't wait to hang out and be normal and Aww. out in the have world again. Have a few spritzes in the park, at the restaurant, oh, no. in someone's home. In someone's I can't <laughs> wait for that. In someone's <laughs> home. Oh, no. With people, with yeah. numerous people yeah. from different yeah. families. With like over four people. Um, yeah. Oh, it's been a joy. It's so nice to have you thank here. Thank you so Aww. much. Good luck with the book. Oh, thanks, thanks, my love. Thank you for joining me this week on The Filling. You can follow me at Anna Barnett Cooks on Instagram for exclusive visuals of my guests' fabulous kitchens and for the recipe to recreate their go-to sandwiches. And of course, subscribe to The Filling on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. The music for today's podcast was recorded by Pony Bones. <laughs>